Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. Today, we will be talking about the Vietnam War. I've got with me Rob Thompson, who is a historian and author specializing in, funnily enough, the Vietnam War. He's written a fantastic new book called Clear, Hold and Destroy, Pacification in Phu Yen and the American War in Vietnam. Welcome, Rob. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me. How... Um, quite active on twitter i think you're you're uh, a little bit worse than me you go searching for the uh for the shit don't you uh i guess i do um yeah i guess there's no other way to put it yeah sometimes i go looking for trouble uh, uh what yeah, did you do uh, what did you, you did what do something I do? you did something very recently something. your twitter exploded again again well uh Every April, uh, there's some states here in the U.S. that celebrate Confederate Heritage Month. And I, uh, I kind of go at it where I do a, a, a Confederate defeat, uh, ba- you know, battle uh, defeat every day for 30 days. Uh, and this year, kind of dragged on, um, engaging with some of the trolls or whatnot. And for some reason, it still feels like April. You know, we're halfway through May. Um God, some no-name person. I'm going to bring him up because he doesn't uh, deserve the attention. Uh, and that just led to some bigger arguments. All re- Basically, it came out that, oh, look, uh, people who celebrate Confederates also celebrate Nazis. Who would have thought? They like white supremacists. Oh, my God. Do you know what? I, every time I'm on Twitter and I, and I log it, somewhere you appear and somewhere... <laughs> You've gone into an argument with some idiot. And I think, what was the tweet you posted? Thanks to this guy, I've just, I think you gained something stupid, like a thousand followers just for that. Uh, I was talking with my wife and I guess maybe between 100 and 200 new followers, just because he tried to send some trolls at me. And I ended up gaining a bunch of followers because I fought back i guess and kind of made fun of him (laughs) and myself and some other historians proved that he doesn't read that was shock horror horror i know surprise a conservative uh you know guy with his own radio show can't read who would have guessed and uh it's it's just been hilarious since right okay enough of these twitter antics 
put your Twitterness aside for this next 40 minutes. I think we can do that. Um, because we're going to be talking about the Vietnam War, it's something that we don't really talk too much. I think we've only had maybe one or two podcasts about the Vietnam War. So we're going to be talking about something that, you know, I don't delve into very often. So I'm really excited to learn a bit more about this. And we're going to be talking about pacification. So this can be defined in very many different ways, but you actually define this in your book. So I think you should tell our listeners and myself uh, what this word actually means. Ooh. So in the book, I spent a whole chapter trying to uh, convey to readers what various Americans and South Vietnamese thought they as individuals uh, understood it, you know, what they thought the word pacification meant, what various uh, South Vietnamese and American uh, entities, so different uh, bureaus or advisory groups thought it meant. And at the end of the day, at the end of the war, in fact, no one agreed on the lasting definition was a part of the whole problem. Um, but uh, for the sake of simplicity, it's all about control. And how do you get to that control is a, you know, uh, another part of that problem. There's an idea that pacification is winning the hearts and minds, uh, like a positive thing. You can go build schools, uh, infrastructure, infrastructure improvements, kind of like all these fun, lovey things to get the people to support a government, in this case, the South Vietnamese government. Uh, but then there's also just the, well, you don't have to be nice. You can just forcibly make the people do what you want them to do. And that's, that's good enough. So at the end of the day, it's really about separating the South Vietnamese peasantry from the communists. And so that way you can, if you're the Saigon government, keep the South Vietnamese citizens separated so you can get them to do what you want them to do. That sounds like total absolute control. And I feel like I'm back in, for example, Nazi Germany. There's like a lot of, there's, there are definitely parallels. And on, you know, the flip side of the coins that the communists are trying to do the same thing. They have their own, like basically what amounts to pacification do, trying to create their own, spheres of influence and i don't get too much into that but they're trying to create these liberated areas where they are the de facto government where the people are only uh loyal to them and so they're the people are literally trapped between these two different you know powers and so it's pretty shitty to put it bluntly um, and there are other books that kind of go into that. A friend of mine, Martin Clemis, uh, wrote a book called The Control War, uh, which gets into how the people are stuck between these two different methods of basically just trying to pacify people. But it's not about hearts and minds. It's just about forcing people to do what you want because you're trying to win a war. I find that very interesting. You use the word liberated. I hope you use that term loosely. Oh, yeah. There's no, there's no like victory parades or, hey, here's your freedom. It's it's very much like you're you're liberating them from some, like the, an opposing ideology. You're you're not it, it's it's not some. Uh, it's a it's very it's used very, very loosely. Let's put it that way. It, 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 it don't think of like a, 
I'm trying to think of another word to say other than like a, a, no, no, no victory parades, but it's it's a term that you you don't want to immediately link to something positive. I agree. It's, it's the only reason I brought it up is uh, is because when the Soviets say that they liberated Poland, it uh, wasn't really a liberation. It was kind of you know swapping one invader for another at the end of day. End of the so, day. Uh, yeah, if you're the if you're the um, Pavan or play if the two communist uh, players in in all of this. I mean, you're communist. You're following a Soviet model. So it's it's that same idea, like you're creating liberated areas the same way probably the Red Army was doing in Eastern Europe during World War II. Right. So we are going to concentrate on a very specific year. We're going to concentrate on 1970. But before we get to 1970, we kind of need to uh, cover the first five years before that. So the pacification of Fuyen begins in 1965. It lasts through to the 1970s. So what actually happens in those half a dozen years? I know we've got a lot to oh, cover yeah. here, so do bear with me. And do. <laughs> uh, before, the pas- before, before the pacification reached its peak and it broke its cowboy's back. So give us this lovely overview of the next five years. All righty. lot to cover. Uh, so let's see. By the end of 1964, you have, at least in Fuyan, a province that is nearly overrun by uh, conventional forces from North Vietnam. Uh, and then you have uh, semi-professional guerrilla forces that are local to the province, also communists that have isolated uh, South Vietnamese forces to the province capital. And so for Saigon, it looks like, oh, we might actually lose to Yen by 1965. You have the buildup, uh, you have the start of the buildup of American forces and American allies across Vietnam, South Vietnam. Uh, then by the end of 1965, that buildup is also occurring in Phu Yen. So starting in the beginning of 1966, American and South Korean troops, along with South Vietnamese troops, start. Uh, operations to clear uh, parts of Fuyan of the communists. And basically they're fighting over rice. They're trying to control rice production. That's where uh, people make their money. That's where uh, most people uh, get fed. So a good part of the book is really just about rice. Um, If you just boil it down to it's about rice production and controlling that production Uh, by 19... 68, a lot of that, uh, those operations have cleared uh, the most densely populated part of the province. Um, and it creates this false sense that everything's going well. So I make an argument that conventional warfare is pacification. Uh, then we have the famous 1968 Tet Offensive, where the communists all of a sudden roar back to life. And they set pacification back by at least a few months, uh, if not longer, uh, but they uh, lose, at least in the eyes of Americans and South Vietnamese, substantial numbers of troops. So for the Americans especially, it's like there, now there's this opportunity in 1969 to rapidly spread pacification, that the communists don't have enough manpower to stop its spread. 
but this doesn't account for the ability of communist guerrillas to kind of fight back. And that gets us to 1970. In 1970, all this accelerated pacification starts running into these security issues. That well, the, this, overstretches security. There's so much happening in those five, six years. I mean, it, it, to me, it sounds like absolute chaos. It's all having like really, really fast. There's like some dramatic changes. Um, and there's like, a, there is a lot of chaos. And 1970 is probably a word to describe. It could be chaos because all this starts coming, all that does come to a head. And if you just go month by month, it's like, it's very chaotic. Well, let's do that then. Uh, more or less, we're kind of, kind of going to go month by month-ish, sort of. Yeah. So the beginning of 1970 is um, quiet, but it's suspiciously quiet. Uh, how does the beginning of the year kick off? So when 1969 ends, it does so uh, with uh, the November monsoons. It's rainy. Uh, everyone kind of goes to, to sleep and, and ends the year with, okay, can't do much. Everything seems to be going well. And everyone then wakes up in 1970 with the same idea that everything was going well. Um, everything should still be going well then because, you know, the rains and whatnot. Uh, the communists didn't get that message. Uh, the communist guerrillas had remained active um, and started an abduction campaign that initially went unnoticed in the beginning of the year. Uh, they were infiltrating uh, villages in Fuyen, uh, abducting civilians, taking them to the mountains for indoctrination saying, hey, we know the Americans under the Nixon administration are going to leave. The Nixon administration has been very vocal about withdrawing the United States from the war. So we're still gonna be here. And so you need to get ready for a communist government. And you can be a part of that or, or not, the choice is yours. And so they're indoctrinating them. They're getting, the, they're getting people ready for their return. And they're abducting not just a couple of people, they're abducting hundreds. In some months, there's like three to 600 people being abducted. So it's massive. And initially these numbers are not being reported by the South Vietnamese. They're not showing up on any records. Uh, US advisors, however, are catching word. Like, you know, when they visit villages, they're noticing like, some people aren't there or nobody's there or uh, people are actually telling them, hey, these people are, well, you know, we noticed activity here. So they're getting, they're catching wind that stuff's happening. And this goes on for a couple of months till finally they can prove, hey, these abductions are happening. And this le- leads to a local issue between the province chief and the American advisors uh, that, uh, starts building and brings in um, American advi- uh, diplomats and they start Americans are trying to figure out how they can remedy the situation without it becoming a more like a, without it becoming a bigger diplomatic issue. And at first it's let's uh, obtain all this uh, intelligence so we can prove what's going on here. 
And through this intelligence gathering, they're able to prove how just how massive these abductions are. At the same time, there are American journalists who catch wind of what's going on and reporting on it. So the American media then finds out, hey, there's abductions going on in Fu Yen. Then, uh, well, it becomes this larger diplomatic issue. Uh, one of the responses is to send American soldiers back to Fu Yen. At this point, they'd already been withdrawn from the province. So they send uh, what they call task force Talon back to retrain the security forces. You had high level visits by American advisors. And so by March, it looks like all they need to do is do some retraining, uh, repositioning of South Vietnamese and South Korean security forces. And maybe that will take care of the problem. But, I'm curious, I'm going to cut you here, because I'm oh. curious to know a bit more about these people that are being kidnapped. Are they men, women, children? I mean, is it more men over women? What do we know about these people that are actually being kidnapped? It's a, it's a mix. It's a lot of uh, younger men, um, people who maybe have relatives that work for the Saigon government in any capacity, um, so I, I have two accounts, uh, two people who were interviewed by uh, a Washington Post reporter. One uh, was a, uh, a man, I forget his age, maybe he was about 30 or 40. Uh, he was taken for indoctrination. Uh, he, I believe he had connections to the Saigon government. That's why he was abducted. And another one was a woman, um, and she uh, worked for the Saigon government, and that's why she was abducted. And but I think the numbers were showing it was usually younger people, so like people maybe closer to their twenties, people that uh, were identified as maybe being um, of that age where they could be future leadership, maybe like more susceptible to uh, indoctrination. But a lot of it had to do with. Uh, reminding people that the communists were there and that they were that the communists were like the real legitimate government so how many of these were actually successful abductions meaning how many of them were actually you could say turned to the communist side i wasn't able to get numbers for how many people like uh how successful these were i um from the uh, efforts to figure out just how wide how widespread these abductions were, it was noted that few, if any, were uh, these uh, efforts were ever intercepted by security forces, meaning that some of these people may may have gone willingly, may um, that security forces may have uh, caught wind that oh the uh, place was going to come into the village and abduct people and decided hey we don't want to be involved. We don't want to, so that at some, at some point people are making choices to either part, will participate, actually willingly go, or just look the other way. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. 
Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, so coming back to March, because you did just mention that. So in March, the American troops are back and they themselves are now retraining these people that have been turned to the communist, communist side. Is this actually successful? Do they turn these people back or are these people stuck now, you know, or they're confused? What's happening with these people they're bringing back? So uh, Task Force Talon comes back with uh, soldiers of like the 173rd Airborne Brigade and they come down from Bin Din to the province right above Fuyan, which was an even worse province. So they they send the few that they can that they can spare, and they're supposed to retrain uh, security forces. Uh, and they find that these uh, forces really don't want to go out on patrols. Uh, they want to do the minimal amount of effort. That uh, in large part they're afraid of engaging the communists. So a lot of the reports are from the Americans are it's really hard to get these guys to get the South Vietnamese security forces to just go and do their jobs. So there's a lot of complaints about that. Um, so if we get to the end of March, uh, very be, you know, literally into beginning of April, uh, seven American uh, advisors are with a South Vietnamese security force on a hill outside the province capital near an area that's very active with communist activity. And they're supposed to be there to ambush um, an, an abduction party. They know that this is usually where they come by. We're going to ambush them. And this is going to be great. We'll get these security forces back into action. We'll show them that, hey, the communists can be fought off. This will be instead this group are they themselves ambushed and five of the seven Americans die. Oh, wow. Okay. And so this goes horrible for the Americans. And this is like what really sparks a lot of changes. This is what turns this province level issue into a big diplomatic issue because this retraining force has now suffered uh, pretty heavy casualties in one, ba- in one firefight 
And what made it even worse is that the, for, the, the South Vietnamese forces they were trading fled from the battle. Is there a chance you can talk us through this? T tell us what actually happened in this battle. What, where, what, why, and how? So the book actually opens with this scene because for me, this was like the, the, the really important part. Um, and I had talked with an American advisor who was uh, in the province at the time. And it was crazy just how important this one event was to the whole story. And so <clears throat> at, the, at the end of March, uh, they were the, this group, this, these seven American uh, soldiers were with this group of South Vietnamese security forces on this hill outside the province capital near a, uh, a hamlet called like Minduk, which was near this mountain that just sticks out in the province that overlooks everything. And while the communists use that hill as uh, a de facto like base area, a base camp, if you will. So they could observe everything from there and they used that uh, as in a base of operations essentially. And everyone pretty much knew it was communist territory. And so there's a bunch of these uh, teams that are out there trying to ambush these uh, communist forces. And again, it goes really bad because uh, in, in a way they walk into a communist trap because the communists are out there waiting to ambush them. And so on this hill, uh, they're waiting to ambush a communist force and instead they come under uh, heavy like rocket fire and the com uh, what is it about by the third wave uh, like human wave attack, the line the, the, the line breaks. The South Vietnamese, South Vietnamese forces are fleeing because they don't want to die there anymore. I, I wrote the line like they didn't want to die in a war that the Americans were abandoning. And at that point, some of the Americans that were, had already uh, succumbed to their wounds and then uh, more Americans died. Um, and, the, and the accounts get really grisly. Uh, I, didn't, I don't know if I, I don't think I included it in the book, but uh, the after action reports noted that all the American uh, casualty, all the American bodies had, uh, they were executed. Even they, they were pretty sure they had died beforehand, but the communists had gone around and shot them in the head to make sure they were dead. That's, that, that's horrific. And then those bodies were brought down from the hill to Minduk and laid out in front of the school. And so that part I know is in the book because like all this imagery was just like, it was really intense and it caught a lot of attention, at least uh, again, from the province straight up back to Saigon. But like this battle itself, it was very quick. Um, maybe I, could, I forget how long, no more than a couple of hours, but it was really intense. And yeah, it went as poorly as possible. And what made it worse was that other American units were in the area and had an idea just how bad it was going, but they could not get there in time. I mean, this ends up as horrific as it is. This becomes now uh, a diplomatic issue, doesn't it? 
Very and quickly, yeah. Yeah, they're making basically a mountain out of a molehill. However, I, I feel bad saying that. Um, to talk us through the repercussions of what happens, because this is this ends up being called what the hilltop disaster, doesn't it? Right. So talk us through these repercussions. What happens? So the South Vietnamese province chief initially tries to pin the blame on an American advisor, tries to say it was his fault that he should have been with that unit, which makes no sense. I spoke with that American advisor and he's like, he had no authority to do that. It's the same American advisor that actually helped uncover the abductions to begin with. So he was already not liked. Um, but everyone you know, was trying to pass, uh, the South Vietnamese province chief and his subordinates were trying to pass the blame elsewhere. Isn't that always the case, though? It's not me. It was him. Right. And so this, is, this looks really, really b- bad for Arvin. Army of the Republic of Vietnam. It looks really bad uh, that their officers, their pro- their province chief, uh, that this all this happened under their authority. And so Arvin uh, launches its own investigation. Um, and I uh, have that in the book. And those those meeting minutes were just crazy to read because they came down and they are, they asked loaded questions. They already had the answers. They had the same information that was provided to them by the Americans, and they just destroyed all the stuff that the province chief was, you know, trying to like throw at them. And there was like one part where they asked him, "Why didn't you like take care? Why, if you knew Minduk was bad, why didn't you clear it out?" And they're like, uh, 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 "And they're like, everyone knows it's communists. Aren't you supposed to get rid of the communists?" And so, Before they attack us, get rid of the yeah. communists. And so they just like point out all these excuses and excuses. And so at, at the end of the day, the Americans are like, you've got to get rid of this province chief. He's bad. And we're pretty sure he's in, he's colluding with the communists. I couldn't find the stuff that proved it. In some of my interviews, it, it was suggested that he was at least trying to cut deals with the communists that like, you know, he was afraid that maybe they would win. And so he was trying to like create this parallel, like this is his own little universe where they wouldn't bother him. Uh, I was able to find some sorts where like they were able to pin like radio traffic coming out of his residence that was going towards the mountains to where the communists were operating. So that was the most evidence that they knew that he was definitely talking with them. And so that was interesting, but the Americans wanted him out of the province. And well, the South Vietnamese were like, okay, but if we're gonna give him up, you have to give up the American advisor who uncovered everything. And so basically the Americans agree to that deal, um, but that deal only happens when the American diplomats uh, in Saigon, meet with uh, the prime minister of South Vietnam. There's a, they, have, they have a meeting, they go over everything. And so this goes all the way up to the highest levels of the South Vietnamese government before there's a resolution that it 
you know, it goes through the South Vietnamese military, uh, it goes through the U.S. embassy, and then, you know, U.S. Uh, diplomats are in Saigon talking with the South uh, Vietnamese uh, prime minister about Phu Yen and what they're going to do. And the resolution is the Americans will remove that U that one U.S. advisor, you know, really wasn't that high of stature if that province chief goes. And now the, the South Vietnamese also removed a couple of the, his subordinates as well, uh, just because the Arvin was like, they, they weren't even doing their jobs. We don't even want them here. So there's a lot of personnel changes. Um, and there's all these other efforts that try to like figure out how to improve security. The South Koreans change stuff to do, you know, both the uh, Arvin and the South Koreans make all these changes uh, to try to combat the abduction campaign by the communists. But at the end of the day, the, the abduction campaign only ended because the communists completed the campaign. Do we know how many people they ended up abducting in the end? I don't know the exact number, but it was probably in the thousands. Um, Cause it went uh, month by month. I think it, I mean, the highest was like 630 or so. Oh, wow. So it went on for a, a number of months. Um, and then I kind of like uh, petered out a little bit. Um, but uh, and then I think in 1971, there were reports that they were doing it again. But 1970 was like that. They were like really focused on indoctrination. So obviously being such an international incident obviously the press have to get wind of this don't they so how do the foreign and i'm gonna throw an american press in here so foreign and american press how do they react to the events happening it's a they have a lot of fun with it that's a weird way to put it but they put a lot of pressure on it and i would say that the press um helps a lot in terms of getting the changes done. The province chief uh, pointed to not liking that negative press. He didn't like his name being mentioned by the, the American press in a negative way. He thought it was unfair that he was being blamed uh, for the abductions and not responding to them in the American press. He's like, that you know, was unfair treatment of him. But of course the American advisors Remind him, like, well, it's all true. There's no lies in any of this. And so... I get it. I mean, he's like, this is this is however much in the wrong he's in. He's like, I'm still not in the wrong, but you're in the wrong. But I'm not in the wrong. And so when the American diplomats are meeting with this, uh, in Saigon with the South Vietnamese prime minister, they bring copies of two of the three newspaper articles that were really, like central to the whole story and they were like here you go like these are literally spot on like these are like the abridged like you don't need to read the reports because these are like the abridged versions of those reports each one covers it a little bit differently a little bit different detail and they're all right and these are the ones he's reported to you that really rubbed him the wrong way but they rubbed him the wrong way because he's embarrassed because they're true and then they tell the prime minister, like, we don't know how it could be much worse there. 
And that's like all the prime minister needs to hear. Be like, okay, yeah, I'll go talk with the president about this because you're right. I just love it. They lay him out with the evidence. Here is the evidence. You don't need to read the minutes. We still got articles that are telling the truth and he's still denying he did anything wrong. Yeah. And it's just like, it, it, so, cause what's interesting about like the Vietnam war, you have all these like, Oh, the, the negative press and it doesn't get stuff right. A lot of people complain about it. When I was doing the research. I was like, these articles are like really, they're correct. They were like, well, they were well, well researched at the time. The journalists were privy to all this information as it was happening. And I'm not sure how I could have written the, the, the book without them because they had access to material that I couldn't like find. Like the, one of them had interviews with people who were abducted. And I, that was great because that's how I, I was able to find like, oh, they were abducting people with connections to the Saigon government. And that was proof of that. Because here are two South Vietnamese interviewees saying, this is why I was abducted. They told me this is why I was abducted. And so, and then when you have all the investigations constantly referring back to these articles as being really important to the whole story, like it's embarrassing. The American media is running with this story but also the South Vietnamese don't like this attention. And it was an interesting dynamic, in short. I'm just going to throw in one last question. So let's stick to this idea, because on this podcast, we love finding out about where you got your sources. We already know one, which are the newspaper articles. Where else did you find all of these sources to be able to put all of this together? Ooh, great question. So I spent a lot of time at the National Archives at College Park, Maryland. Uh, that's where the vast majority of American uh, records on the Vietnam War are stored. Like all the advisory records are there. I spent a lot of time there going through them. I spent a lot of time at the Center for Military History at Fort McNair in Washington, DC. They have copies of all those records. Um, and uh, I guess those are a little bit easier to go through uh, in terms that it is organized differently. Um, so that made trying the, the province reports um, easier. Kind of trying to think of another way to phrase that, but um, also no pull times, which made CMH fantastic at being able to look at records at my own pace. I spent two weeks at the, out at Stanford at the Hoover Library uh, looking at records for Edward Lansdale um, because he was privy to all the conversations dealing with what does pacification mean when he was in Saigon. So that chapter uh, is based largely on those conversations. Um, and then fortunately, I, a lot of records are digital um, on, I changed the name, the Vietnam Center and Archive, which is run by Texas Tech at Lubbock. And they have a lot of uh, Vietnamese records, both communist and South Vietnamese. So I was able to pull stuff from everywhere. So basically you've amassed such a huge range of archival material to put all this together. Yeah, uh, I would say so. 
Amazing. Rob, listen, thank you so much for joining us and uh, and talking about the pacification and all of these uh, crazy events that are happening between the communists and uh, the, the American troops and diplomatic incidents and everything else. So, ladies and gentlemen, make sure you head towards our online bookstore to grab yourself a copy of Rob's book, Clear, Hold and Destroy Pacification in Fuyen and the American War in Vietnam. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast. You can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work on quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look. Do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well and you could be part of all of it. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.